So two weeks ago, we started this series called Living in Exile. And we're looking at stories from an ancient time in Israel's history uh, where a powerful nation named Babylon came in and conquered Israel, and they captured or kidnapped some of the best and brightest young people and took them back with them to Babylon. The idea was, everybody we capture, we're going to take their smartest and brightest people, bring them back to our place, and then we'll have all the smartest and brightest people. And so you have these probably junior high to early high school aged young men, um, at first it was young men, uh, who get ripped from their homes, taken thousands of miles away. They find themselves in a culture they do not understand, with a language they do not know, and they have to immediately kind of start figuring out how to navigate this new life that they have been uh, thrust into, how to navigate this new world that they don't really fully understand. And so the main idea of this series that we need to kind of understand is that I think in, in a very similar way, we as Christians in our modern world are living as exiles, only instead of us getting picked up and taken away to a culture we don't understand, our culture changed around us incredibly fast. And so we, I mean, Christian doctrine doesn't change. I mean, Christians have been believing and singing the same stuff for 2,000 years. And so in some of the ways, we've stayed the same and our culture around us changed. And so we find ourselves all of a sudden living in a world that we don't totally know what to do with, a world we don't totally recognize. Um, and so, you know, we used to live in a culture that in many ways supported the beliefs and practices of Christianity, a culture that was ran according to the beliefs and practices of Christianity and the moral standard of Christianity. And the older you are, the more you know this to be true, the more you understand the shift that has taken place because you've got more perspective. Um, but now our culture views Christian morality and beliefs as silly and outdated. Um, and in some cases, they look at us and think that's what you believe is dangerous. And so it's really an unusual landscape that a lot of us find ourselves in. Um, it's not unusual in terms of history. You look at the Christians in the New Testament, they were going through kind of the same thing. They didn't really belong where they were. And, but in terms of our nation and our little spot in the world, this is really very new to us. And so I think it's helpful for us to look at these stories of these young men and women who get thrust and are taken from the culture they recognized and put in a place they don't to kind of help us to think, okay, how do we navigate this world that isn't necessarily friendly to us, this world that wants us to change what we believe, to act differently than what our convictions tell us to act in. And so... Um, not only will we face kind of, I think, negative pressure in this new, newer era, pressure to com compromise and give up what we believe, but one thing that's really weird is that there's no longer positive pressure to be a Christian, right? Like, culture just, because culture was so saturated with Christianity, like, there was just kind of a natural cultural push for everybody to do Christian things, to have a, a Christian moral standard, to go to church on Sunday. You know, if you... Um, Several decades ago, if you had a business and you had it open on Sunday, oh my goodness, what a heathen you were. And now it's like, if you don't have your business open on Sunday, you are missing out. You're a fool because there's money to be made and success to be captured. And so that's a big shift that we have gone through. And what I think is um, one of the problems with how Christians are navigating this new culture is that we don't know how to navigate this new culture. 
I'm, I don't think it does us any good to sit around and be like, oh, this culture is so evil, everyone's going to hell, what's happening? I don't think it does us any good to sit there and be angry and rant. We'll talk more about that next week. But, but really, I think the problem is we have to, like these young men in uh, the Old Testament, we've got to kind of learn. We've got to start paying attention and understand how do we navigate in this new world while maintaining our faith, while standing firm on the foundation of Jesus. Um, and, you know, we can lament all day long. I just don't recognize the world anymore. Uh, this isn't the world I grew up in. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. But, but that's not going to get us really far. It, there's a lot more positive work that we can do if we take some lessons. And so um, from the Old Testament, we're going to be in the book of Daniel today. We were in the book of Daniel last week. We'll be in Daniel today. Um, if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible, we're going to move through a little, uh, pretty good-sized story here. We're not even going to read the whole thing. Um, we'll be in Daniel chapter 3, uh, Daniel 3. Um, so if you got a Bible that you brought, Extra point, bonus points for you. If you want to use one of the Pew Bibles, that's awesome. If you want to use the Bible app on your phone, that's also very good and well. Um, now, if you missed last week, let me get you up to speed on the major characters in our story. Uh, the central focus has been on four guys, Daniel, his three buddies, um, who in the Christian world... Um, we, are, we remember their new names better, because when these guys get brought to Babylon, they get, all their, they get all new names. They get their Israel names stripped of them, and they get these new Babylonian names. And for some reason, Daniel, we remember, that's his Israel name. We don't, we don't glom onto his name, uh, his new name. But the other three, three guys we do, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what, do we, what have we always called them in the church world? Somebody knows it. Rakshak and Benny? Has nobody heard that? What? It's part, yeah, I, it's part Veggie Tales, but I learned, I didn't even grow up in church and I got that. What is, oh my goodness, people, what, how did I, this is the first time I knew something about old-timey church culture more than anybody else. Hold on. Let's bask in it for a second. This never happens? Is it for, well, okay. I'm... I'm, I'm from the 80s, that feels old-timey to me. Um, anyway, but, okay, so, so we've got... These four guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as the story will call them. And they get brought to this new culture, and they immediately start getting indoctrinated. With a, there was like an official plan to change these guys from being Israelites into being Babylonians. And they had to selectively kind of figure out, where do I take my stand? Because they couldn't put up a fight about everything, because they would have gotten killed rather quickly. And so they pick selective places where they don't want to compromise their beliefs. And so the story continues today. Um, Daniel's out of the picture for this particular story, and we're just focusing on his three friends. But what we kind of get is they were all really um, dedicated to not compromising while trying to navigate this new world that they lived in. And so they had to go through um, this indoctrination program where they learned uh, the history, the beliefs, the laws, the religious stuff of this new place. Um, like I said, they got stripped of their old names and get given new names. Um, but only after this, they've gone through this program, which was supposed to last three years, after they've gone through this program, they did pretty well. And they kind of earned and impressed, earned some respect and impressed the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And they get kind of put in some really good positions, which is weird because, again, they were foreigners. 
the Babylonian people who were natives kind of thought, you don't give the good spots to the outsiders. Like, that goes to us. But yet, they, did, they were so special and so unique, that, and God had blessed them so much to navig- as they navigated this culture carefully that he allowed the king to have favor on them and put them in some special places. Now, that's what we get know going into Daniel chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's 90 feet tall. And it was 60 cubits, and its breadth was 6 cubits, 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura, so outside of a city, on this big wide open space, he builds this gigantic statue in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So he builds this giant gold-covered statue out on a plain. Um, it doesn't say, notice, what the statue was of. Uh, some people think it was he made a statue of himself, maybe, um, Judging by the language of it all, it's probably more likely that he made a statue of, of one of the Babylonian gods. Um, the, the chief god that he had was Marduk, which immediately thinks me, makes me think of the uh, Sunday morning cart or the cartoon in the funnies. Well, it was, um, but it wasn't Marduk. It was what? Marmaduke. Yes. Um, was it a dog? You what? Yeah, we know. You know Marmaduke, right? Um, not Rackshack and Rackshack and Benny. Um, but anyway. So he builds this giant statue, probably to a Babylonian god. He then wants to have a big dedication. And so he brings officials, higher-ups, from all over the kingdom. And not just the people from in Babylon. It said from all over the provinces. So of all the the territories that Babylon has conquered, um, what they would do is they would go through, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar would get rid of the leaders and put in his own leaders. And so now he's bringing all of those people in to dedicate this. This is a way of saying, okay, you guys have all your cultures, you have all your stuff going on, but now here's going to be a test. Now we're going to see if you can come in here and lay down what you believe and support what we believe. Can you lay down your regional religions and be a Babylonian through and through? And so they have all these big officials there, and his goal seems to not only honor this god of Marduk, but to challenge and put all the leaders to the test. And so this hall, he has everybody brought in, and then an announcer gets up and makes the big announcement to start the ceremony. In verse 4, we'll jump down to verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So this herald, this announcer, explains the new rules of this day that they're going to, that they're, this uh, unveiling ceremony for the statue. When the orchestra plays, you hit the ground and you worship this statue. Um, now, worship in um, really the ancient world, it, it meant to get down face first on the ground, like a position of, of submission before this statue. That's what he wants them to do. And so he, then, after saying, okay, regardless of what you believe, you're all going to get down on the ground, face in the dirt, and you're going to worship this statue when the music kicks in. Which, by the way, um, when I saw bagpipes in there, I had to like do a little bit, it like totally distracted my week, and I had to do a deep dive, because I'm like, that's Irish and Scottish, like that's not... 
that's not Babylonian. But yeah, apparently they had bagpipes back then. That's a real thing. Um, so after they learn um, what they have to do, then the announcer lets them know that if they don't, there will be a very serious and very immediate consequence. Verse 6, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, um, how many of you, just to kind of gauge, how many of you, when you watch shows, TV shows or movies, how many of you are the kind of people that notice Mistakes and inconsistencies. Oh, that pony, her hair was in a ponytail that last scene. No, it's not. Or the person whose like, hair was messed up and then like, it cuts to another person and back to them and it's pristine again. You know, Some of you notice that stuff, right? Some of us do not. I remember uh, growing up, uh, my family, we always watched the show MASH. Loved the show MASH. And there was one episode, and I don't even know why, of all the things that happened in my childhood, this stuck in my brain. But there was one episode where somebody, like, kicks a trash can, and it was a plastic five-gallon bucket. And my dad was like, they didn't have those in the 50s, which is when MASH was saying. He's like, that didn't come around until the 60s. And I looked up. He's right. Like, it doesn't, like, he's right. Like, but, like, who notices the trash can in the corner of a room? Like, that just, that kind of stuff doesn't always. Um, some people are hardcore about that stuff um, to the point where, like, I read a story once about when Titanic came out, all, like, what, 25 years ago or whenever it was. Um, there were people that noticed that given the date that it happened and the time of year that it happened, that the stars in the sky were wrong. Yeah. And so James Cameron was like, I ain't having that. And so when he like remastered it a few years ago, he went through and they corrected all the stars. Like, because people pay so much attention to this stuff. Um, now, again, I'm not usually looking for problems. I'm just kind of going with the story. And that's why um, I've read this story dozens of times and I never once asked, why is there a furnace in the desert? Like, isn't that seem like a, like, why would there be a furnace in the middle of this big old open desert plain that they're in. And believe it or not, it actually makes absolute perfect sense, okay? Because it would have been maybe not a furnace, but a kiln for the firing of the bricks that they would have used to build this statue, or maybe even to melt the gold. It would have been something used for the construction of this giant statue. And they just hadn't taken it apart yet because the statue was so recently finished. And so I used to think, hey, that makes no sense. That's a mistake in the Bible. But it's not. There actually was a very perfectly valid reason for there to be this giant furnace. And it would have been a big one, too, for something this size to make a, a, a statue that big. And it would have been shaped like a big bottle, wide at the top, skinny at, or wide at the bottom, skinny at the top um, for the smoke to go out. Um, it would have had a, uh, several really big openings on the front, one for uh, putting in the things you need to fire, uh, one for putting in the fuel source, whatever that was, probably, who knows, grass and wood and whatnot. And so it would have been this big, huge, giant furnace that could have gotten very, very hot. For instance, if it was used to melt gold, gold doesn't melt till around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so we're talking real warm, okay? Real, real, real hot. And so when the announcer says... Anybody who doesn't do this gets thrown into the fiery furnace. He would have been like, anybody who doesn't bow down gets thrown into this fiery furnace. 
And they would have seen, oh no, that's a big furnace. Those things get hot. No thank you. I'm going to put a head, my, head on the for, or my, my forehead on the ground. Like nobody had any doubts in their mind about following through with this. Everybody was going to do this. They were in a hurry to see who could get down on the ground fast enough because nobody wanted to go into this fiery furnace. That is everyone except Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now last week we saw that Daniel and his friends were willing, or two weeks ago, were willing to take a stand. When, it, when they came into a moment that caused them to break specifically the law of God. They did not want to do things that led them to break the laws of God. And one of the, like, the main top of the heap laws that God gave the people of Israel was that they were to not worship anything other than the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh is the name of the God in the Old Testament. And they were to worship no one but Yahweh alone. The law is incredibly clear on this in Exodus chapter 20 when, we, when the Ten Commandments are originally given out. It says, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. And if they're standing there right in front of this giant statue of this foreign god, they can't bow down. He says, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. No statues. That's why the, the t- temple in uh, Jerusalem eventually, there's never... There's never a statue that looks like God. There's never anything like that. It says, you should not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Meaning, I don't want your affection going to anybody else but me. I made you to be in a loving relationship with you, and I am protective of that relationship. And he says, I am visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep me or who love me and keep my commandments. So when this entire crowd bows down, these three guys don't do it because they're not going to worship anything but Yahweh the God of Israel. And in a crowd of thousands of people, it's going to be a little bit noticeable when somebody doesn't bow down. It, I mean, people are going to notice that when that doesn't happen. Now, because the crowd was so big, not everybody's going to notice it. Nebuchadnezzar didn't notice it. Um, but, you know, in any situation, there's always a few snitches. There's always a few tattletales that are just eager to tell on somebody to get ahead. And so a couple of people, they go to Nebuchadnezzar. We'll go, jump down to verse 12. Daniel 3, verse 12. It says, there are some certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, was, uh, then Nebuchadnezzar in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of, here we go again, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning 
fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? So he's incredibly angry because he's not used to people telling him no. I mean, he's one of those people, like, he was ruler of pretty much the world at this point. Nobody would ever, ever, ever told him no. And that, that messes with your head. Like, you can see that with celebrities who get so rich that they start surrounding themselves with people whose paychecks depend on that celebrity. And they just say that whatever that person wants to hear, it messes with your head. And he's not used to it. And so when somebody finally tells him no, he's like, the audacity! How dare you? Like, I mean... People tell you no all the time, right? Like, don't you hear no all the time? Like, I hear it all the time. Like, that's just life is a bunch of no's. But this guy, it doesn't, he doesn't handle it well. And so he's outraged because, again, remember, he took these foreigners and he liked them so much he gave them a nice job, a cushy job with authority and with probably a decent standard of living. So he's offended that these people that he's helped and reached out to and he's done so much for, that those people would tell him, no, how dare they? How could they possibly do that? And so he's so powerful. He says, what God is going to stop me? What God in the world? He's like, I'm pretty much God of the world. Who's going to stand up against my authority and my power? What an arrogant, arrogant thing to say. He believes that they are helpless in this moment. Now, as we look at our world, I'm not here to fearmonger and tell us that we're all going to get tossed into fiery furnaces if we don't bow down to whatever our culture tells us to do. I don't think we're going to be carted off to jail soon for being Christians. I don't think that's where we are as a nation. Um, some people will say that. I don't think we're there. I, don't, I hope we don't get there. Um, but what I do want to make clear is that to be a follower of Jesus, we have to be willing to stand firm on our faith no matter what. That has always been true. And there's, there's, there's even dangers and pitfalls in places we have to stand, had to stand firm when culture was affirming to Christianity. So you better believe that now there's places we're going to have to stand firm and say, no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't walk that road. I have to stay here and follow my convictions, follow my faith in my God. And so we have to be clear and understand that sometimes it's going to not be easy. There is going to be pain associated with saying yes to God and no to the culture and the push of culture in our lives. Um, there might be times when your faith costs you a job. Uh, you might have a boss who pushes you to make some less than okay transactions something that's a little off the books for the good of the company. And you just say, I can't, I can't. I can't. My integrity tells me I can't do that. It's lying. It's deceiving. And I'm not supposed to be the kind of person who does those kinds of things. Uh, you might be in a line of work where you are encouraged to upsell people on products or services that you know is a ripoff. And you say, I just can't do that. And it hurts your sales or it's just you going against what your boss has told you to do. And they're going to say, if you can't do this, you're going to have to be let go. And you say, I guess, I guess you got to let me go. Because you don't want to compromise who you are and who God has called you to be, the kind of person that Christ is shaping you into in order to make a sale or get a promotion. Um, you might lose friendships or relationships with family members over your faith. I've had that happen before. Um, I had it happen a lot right after I became a Christian, um, weirdly enough. Um, it kept, my faith started to keep me from wanting to do and participate in some of the more foolish things that my friends did 
and what I had formerly done, you know, you kind of start thinking, well, I, can't, I, sh- I shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff anymore. And what's really interesting is when you're with people and everybody's doing something and you say, I'm, I'm not going to do that, that is typically going to be interpreted as you judging them. Oh, you think you're better than us? You're not going to do this? Oh, you, don't, you don't want to, oh, geez, well, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were so good and so holy. I didn't know you thought you were better. That's what happened. I was so surprised. Nobody warned me about this when I became a Christian. All of a sudden, my friends thought I was judging them. I wasn't. I was just thinking about what I should do in my relationship with God, but that's the way it was interpreted. And I had a lot of people say, well, if that's what you're doing, see ya. I had someone for the first time in my life call me a goody two-shoes. That's a weird thing to be called when you're an 18-year-old man. Soon, almost man. I won't say man, but when you're like, that was a weird thing for me. Like, goody, like, do we, are we in the 1950s? Are we going to go to the soda bar? Like, I just felt like a weird thing to be called in, you know, the early 2000s. Um, there might be, maybe one day, there might be legal consequences for being a Christian. That typically is not the case. Um, right now in the UK, there's certain places where um, it's illegal to pray within a certain distance around an abortion clinic. And if you sit, go there, there's a lady, she got arrested because she was just standing on the corner, and somebody complained about her, and the police like, what are you doing? She said, I'm praying, and they arrested her. She could have said, nothing? What are you doing? Nothing? If she just said nothing, but she admitted, I'm praying, and that's against, you can't do anything of religious significance in this, supposed to be this free area. I don't know how the law works on that or what the, the point of it is necessarily, but, but she got arrested for that. Now, I will also say, I don't know if you necessarily had, if she had to put herself in that position. Because if they say, you can't pray within two blocks of an abortion clinic, you go to the edge of two blocks and then you go, like, prayer's not like a walkie-talkie. There's not like a max range on it. Like, you can pray for that same place and those people from this far as opposed to, so, I mean, there's, there's even times where I'm like, I'm not even sure we have to at times invite that on ourselves the way some people um, are tempted to. But regardless, what I'm saying is there's just going to be times when being a Christian is going to be costly. It's going to come with a price. And the, the, the higher the cost, the harder it's going to be to remain faithful. That's why Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are standing before this all-powerful king. And, and it's why they're, the response they have to him is incredibly inspiring. Because what he does here is he gives them another chance. He brings them in and he says, okay. I've heard they said you didn't bow down. You get one more shot. You bow down, good and well. We call it a day and we all go back our merry way. It's like, but if you don't, there's the furnace. And so here's what they say in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, meaning you don't even need to fire up the band. You don't even even need to have them play because we already know how this is going to go. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The fearlessness, the absolute trust in God, the moxie, the whatever you want to call it, the guts this must have taken. They tell this man who can threaten them with any punishment he wants, they tell him, sorry, whatever you want us to do, we're not doing it. No, 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 no. 
What a shocking thing for the person who's never heard those words. Now, you probably know the rest of the story. They get tossed into the fiery furnace. In fact, they fire it up as hot as it'll go. They toss them in the fiery furnace, but the fire doesn't touch them. Their clothes aren't uh, burnt up. Their hair doesn't get singed. They don't even get the smell of smoke on them when they come out. And not only uh, can the people see, because again, like I said, there's a big openings on, on parts of this furnace for them to carry in the large amounts of fuel it would have taken to light this thing up. And so they can see in there and they're like, you know, normally when people get tossed in there, they don't keep walking around. And not only were there three, but there was a fourth person that entered the conversation. And they see this fourth person, and Nebuchadnezzar said the fourth person was like a son of the gods. Now, some people say that was an angel. Some people say it was Jesus. Either way, it's God sending help. It's God showing up in that moment to be with them. It's God coming through in a miraculous way to reward their faith, but also show King Nebuchadnezzar, remember you just said, and what God can stop me? This God can stop you. That's what's going on in this moment in the story. But we're not going to go through the rest of that part of the story. You got the, you got the, the quick version, the Cliff Notes version. Um, that part of the story gets all the headlines and all the focus because it is really cool and amazing. But I don't want us to miss what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just said to this guy's face. As they're standing on the edge of getting tossed in this furnace, they just say, sorry, we're not going to do it. God will come through for us. We believe he's going to actually rescue us from this furnace. But you know what? If not, we're still going to trust him and not you. And they teach us this incredibly important lesson about being exiles. And it's that exiles are faithful even when it's costly, even when it's dangerous. Regardless of what we might lose, exiles stay faithful no matter what. In the face of someone incredibly powerful, they do not forget that God is more powerful. You see, that's kind of where we get caught. We get stuck in front of a moment or that feels huge and life-altering and cataclysmic, and we forget that as big as that thing feels to us, that thing is tiny, tiny, tiny compared to the size and power of our God. And what they do is they fully understand that there's going to be consequences. They're okay with that. But the fear of those immediate consequences does not make them forget about the bigger consequences that there will be if they give up on their God. And so they fear disappointing God way more than they fear disappointing Nebuchadnezzar. And this is tough because when we're faced with these moments, like I said, when we're pushed to compromise, pushed to give up, when we have a, a job that we're going to lose or our, you know, our livelihood's on the line or we have friends that we care about who say, forget you, I'm done with you, that's life-altering and it's devastating and it's painful. And, and we have a hard time seeing past the fiery furnace in those moments. But we are able... If we, can, if we can, like these guys, if we can be strong and able, we can see past the fear of the immediate consequences and understand there are more dangerous eternal consequences of turning our back on God. Uh, Jesus taught his disciples to have this very same perspective. He knew that the people that followed him would have pers face persecutions and all kinds of things. And several of his disciples, uh, James, uh, Peter's brother, uh, or P John's brother, excuse me, he died very soon after Jesus rose uh, from the grave. Um, these guys faced these very severe persecutions. They were beaten, tossed in jail, all kinds of stuff. And Jesus warned them. In Matthew 10, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Do not let the fear... Uh, don't, don't fear the people who can only take earthly stuff from you. Fear the God who can hand out eternal punishment or reward. 
They say, look a little bigger, as big as the people look, and as scary as the consequences might sound. And so standing in the face of Nebuchadnezzar, as scary and as powerful and as big and bad as he was, they knew that he was just a puny, tiny little mortal standing next to their God. And so they very clearly state that they know God has the power to rescue them, but if he chooses not to in that moment, even if he does not, if God does show up with a miracle or if he doesn't show up with a miracle, he is still more deserving of our honor and praise than you. And they're basically saying, why don't you just toss us in? Why don't you just just do what you're going to do? Just do it so we can get this over with. Because they will not throw away their eternal reward to avoid temporary pain. And that's, I think, something we have to keep in mind all the time in this new culture. We will be challenged to compromise our beliefs, to take little, tell little lies, do little indiscretions at work, thinking this is all fine, this is just the new world we live in, this is just how people survive at, the, at a job like this, or whatever it might be. Um, this is just dating in a modern world. Whatever the compromises might be, we have to realize we should not be willing to throw away our relationship with our eternal God in order to avoid temporary pain and to make life just that little bit easier. And so they don't know what's going to happen when they fall into that furnace, but they know they'd rather trust God than give in to their fear. And this same kind of unstoppable faith is present in so many amazing people throughout the Bible. The Apostle Paul has this in his guts when he reads the, uh, wrote these words in Philippians chapter 1. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He was in jail when he wrote these words, not knowing if he was going to get executed or get set free. So he's like, either way, God's going to be honored in how I live my life. I will not compromise regardless of the direction this goes. He says, for me, to live is Christ, meaning if I keep on living, I keep suffering and I keep serving like Jesus, and to die is gain. So even if they do what they think is their worst, I win. Even if they let me go, I win. But even if they put me on a cross, I win. Now, when we have this ultimate trust in God, and we firmly believe that he's going to be there to catch us in this life and the next, there is nothing to fear anymore. If we can get to a place where we have this level of trust in, in our Savior, there is nothing that scares you anymore. Because there's nothing bigger than him. There's nothing greater than him. There's nothing more amazing and yet also nothing more dangerous than him. There's no reason to compromise, no reason to give in to pressure, because it's not even pressure anymore. It's like, oh, lose my job or, you know, dishonor God? Lose my job. Like it becomes, very, the decisions become clear and, e- excuse me, and easy. Why fear those who can only hurt our feelings or take our income or put us in jail? when the all-powerful creator of the universe is standing with us through any and every moment. And so we have been saved by Jesus, who not only died to make us right with God, but Jesus rose from death to show us that even death doesn't need to scare us anymore. The resurrection of Jesus, he was just like um, the beta test. He was the first one of the the grand resurrection that will one day happen that we take part in. He, he rose from death to show us that we don't even have to be scared of the scariest thing that every person faces. And so we must be people who can stand our ground and not follow our friends into foolishness. We must pursue righteousness as our world surrounds us with sinfulness. And we must be willing to suffer if that's what it takes to be faithful to the God 
who has been ever faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your unfailing, unwavering faith. We're thankful for stories of of great um, people of character like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, that these people can um, be a great example of the fearlessness that we as people who follow you, as followers of Jesus, uh, the kind of fearlessness that we must face in a world that's going to push us to compromise. And I pray that we can even read the New Testament with kind of fresh eyes of looking at these men and women who were um, fish out of water in their world. They were trying to honor you and live by principles that nobody else in the world even understood. And Christians look so strange in those early days. And I just pray that we can um, have that same character, that same strength to trust in you no matter what happens, no matter what consequences are going to come our way by being people of character, people who refuse to lie because you are a God of truth, people who refuse to be greedy and take because we don't have to take anything. We, we serve a God who generously blesses, so why would we take anything? when God is constantly giving. We can be a people who forgive even when everybody else is angry and holding grudges because we serve a God who forgives. And so I pray, Father, that as we are the people who try to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and as we move more and more into a world that that makes us weird and strange and, yes, to some people, even dangerous, I pray that there is nothing that makes us want to compromise, that we have the same kind of faith as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where we stand in the face of anything dangerous, anything painful, and we just say, we're not going to budge. We're not going to move from our faith. We're not going to move from our convictions because we want to honor God at all costs. So help us to be uh, faithful in all, in all circumstances and trust you um, to come through for us in all situations. It's in Jesus' beautiful name that we pray. Amen.